wow, it's really hard to follow that, right? It's kind of distracting me. Um, I grew up in Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. I don't know if you guys uh, are from Minnesota. Any Minnesotans out there? No, just me. Fine. It's fine. I'm okay with that. Two of you. That's great. Um, but if you know anything about Minnesota, you know that we have lots of lakes, lots of mosquitoes when it's warm outside, a lot of cold weather. You can get just about anything you could ever eat on a stick. But one thing we don't have are mountains. There are no mountains in Minnesota. So you can imagine my excitement about 16 years ago when I was in Minnesota, and I had a chance to lead a group of high school students on a trip to Yellowstone National Park. I was pumped. We drove through the night. We get there, and the next morning, I know we're going to take a hike up this huge mountain that's supposedly just spectacular. So sure enough, the next day, we get up. It's still really early, a little dark, because it's a long hike in front of us. And we start heading into the trees. I don't know if you've been on a hike like this before. You're in such dense cover for 90% of the hike, you can't really see where you are. You don't have perspective of what's around you or how high you're getting. Every once in a while, you get like a little window, and you can sort of see something, but it's not really everything. You know what I'm talking about? And sure enough, we are hiking all through the day, and we break through the tree line, and the view is just amazing, right? But up in front of us, there's that high horizon, the, the peak, and we are headed for the peak. So we continue to the top of the mountain, and when I get to that horizon, when I stand on the peak of that mountain and I look out, it happens. That moment. You know the moment I'm talking about? The moment where you're just awestruck. The moment where you realize just how big this world, this universe is, and you realize just how small we are. And you're awestruck. What I find so interesting about that moment, have you guys had moments like that? With the beach, where you're looking up in the sky, where people who live in other places apparently have these moments all the time. Did you know that? But what happens is we're reminded of our smallness, we're reminded of our fragileness, but for some reason, it doesn't make us fearful. It, it sort of comforts us in a way. It gives us peace in a way. And just for a moment, if only just for a moment, our insecurities and our fears seem to kind of melt away. Well, our psalm for today is meant to be an experience just like that. David is using poetry, the writer of this psalm, to give us a peek above the clouds, to take a look behind the curtain, to see just a little piece so we can understand some of the greatness of God. And it's experience today that I hope will leave you seeing a bigger God and yet a smaller, somehow more peaceful, more courageous, more joyful you, and not just for a moment, but for forever. So today we're going to be looking at Psalm 139. And my hope is that you'll stand back aghast at the incredible love of God for you. Open your Bibles to Psalm 139. And as we're getting there, let me just tell you this. There are a lot of big theological words that people use when they're teaching on this passage. Big words, these are all the omni words to describe these magnificent, wonderful traits of God. Words like omnipresent, right? That God is always present. Um, omniscient that God knows everything, omnipotent, that God is all-powerful. But today, I'm not going to use these words. And let me tell you why. Because David doesn't use these words. David isn't describing 
or isn't providing for us technical information about God. That's not his primary purpose for doing this. He does that. We do get information about God. But the reason David is writing this psalm is to describe his experience, his personal relationship with God. But sometimes when we take a psalm or a passage of scripture like this and boil it down to some vocabulary word, we might learn something new, but we can so easily miss the point. So today, as we walk through Psalm 139, I want you to hear it, I want you to see it, I want you to experience it as David's expression of his walk with God. We're going to be looking at the psalm in two parts. The first part, verses 1 through 18, we're going to get three glimpses of God's incomprehensible greatness. And then in verses 19 through 24, you're going to get a kind of odd look at David's unexpected response. So look with me at our first glimpse of God's incomprehensible greatness, verses 1 through 6. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is just too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So the first glimpse we get of God's incomprehensible greatness is that God knows you better than you could ever know yourself. We all want to be known, right? Well, let me say it a little differently. We all want to be known, sort of, right? We all want people to know parts of us, but definitely not all of us. You look at Facebook or any kind of social media, Instagram, what do people do? What do we do? We put up the parts of us that we want other people to know about, and we kind of hide the unsavory bits, right? Isn't that what we do? Being known is one of our greatest desires, but it's also one of our greatest fears, fear of being exposed. This is why so many of us have these nightmares where uh, you wake up because you're so scared you've found yourself standing in public in your underwear, right? How many of you have had that dream? Okay, the reason only five of you are raising your hand is because you're afraid of being exposed. You see? Everybody's had that dream. Well, why is that? Well, at our core, we know we're messed up. We know that we don't love every part of ourselves. We know that we do or say or think things that aren't exactly what we want to be saying or thinking or doing. And it's always been that way. We've always known that about ourselves and wanted to hide it. It started with Adam and Eve. Remember the story? Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're naked and unashamed. Then what happens? They turn their back on God. They sin. They reject his leadership for their life. And immediately they're grabbing at every leaf or bush to cover themselves up. They see that they're naked, they see one another, and they try to hide from each other. And then later in the passage, God comes back to the garden, and he's walking among them in the cool of the day, and where's Adam? He's hiding. He's hiding from God. He doesn't want to be seen. He doesn't want to be known. We have been hiding behind fig leaves ever since. We all do it. It's inescapable. We have part, four major parts of us. We have the parts of us that are open, the parts that we know about and other people know about. These are the things, the pictures that we post on Facebook, right? There's another part of us that we know, but other people don't know. 
Those are the hidden parts of us, right? Kind of the facade. Every one of us has that. And then we have another part, and these are the things that other people know about you, but you don't know about yourself. These are your blind spots, right? This is like the piece of spinach in your teeth or the toilet paper on your shoe, right? These are those things. And then there's a whole other quadrant. And these are things that you have no idea even about yourself. So what does that mean? How do you not know things about yourself? Well, think back to a younger version of yourself. And maybe you would say, I would never have guessed or known that about myself, how I would have navigated that crisis or that problem or that hardship or that situation in my life. And because of the way I went through that, I learned something new about myself. It's a pretty common thing. We all have those experiences. So how do we be known? People who can't even fully know ourselves. Well, the truth is, only God can know you. Only God can really know every bit of who you are, every piece of who you are. It's incredible, but it's true. Only God can know you. And you want to hear something even more incredible? If you think of uh, God's knowing you, it's not just that he knows you're present, which he does, but he also knows all of your past and all of your future perfectly, and he sees it all at the exact same time. When he looks at you, he sees everything about you. If you think of time like this line right here, we're like this little tiny blip moving a long time, right? And we're only just sort of aware of what's immediately around us. We have no idea what's going to happen in the future. And the further we move, the more we forget of what's behind us, right? God isn't like that. God isn't like that at all. In fact, 2 Peter 3.8 says that a day is like a thousand years to God, and a thousand years is like a day. So what does that mean? It means that if you imagine this timeline from the beginning of time to the end, God sees all of it, all of it at one time. At one time. It means that God is present in all of eternity in an instant. So he sees all of eternity in a single instant. And it means that he's present with all of every instant for all eternity. Do you get the switch there? So he's present with everything that could ever happen in an instant. And then he's also present with each one of these instants for all of eternity. Whoa. That is some mind-blowing information. So what does that mean? It means God has known every detail about who you are from the moment you were conceived to the moment you die. He's known all of it from before the beginning of time. Now, for some of us, that's a comforting thing. For others who are thinking kind of deeply about this and self-aware, it's a little bit unsettling, isn't it? To think about a God, a perfect, holy God, would actually know everything about you. Everything. Every little thought, every little action, every little impulse, every motivation, everything. It kind of makes NSA look like a joke, right? And as you see in these next few verses, even David expresses some of that longing, that desire to run, to not want to be fully exposed. But what you also see is that David moves through that. He moves from his uneasiness of exposure to a joyful acceptance, and even at the end, he invites God in with open arms. So how can David, how can we make this shift? Well, David can do this. He can live in this reality comfortably and accepting it because he knows 
that God has forgiven him and God accepts him. But I also know that there are several of you here in this room that have a hard time believing that God could really accept you and love you if he truly knows everything. And while I understand it, and I even, honestly, I appreciate your self-awareness, remember that God is above time. He knew everything that you would do before he sent Jesus to die. So Jesus came and died for you 2,000 years ago, and when he did that, he knew everything about your life, your past, your present, and your future. And you know what? He wasn't surprised. He didn't change his mind. He still came. He still died for you. He will not change his mind. While God is above time, he has locked his love for you in the unchanging past so that you can be sure that it can never be taken away, that it can never be changed. My wife and I are expecting our third little boy here in a couple weeks, and we're really excited. That's why I was so distracted by that video bump earlier. Um, we are so excited. We prepared our house. We prepared his room. And we just can't wait for this baby to come, to be able to hold him and just love him. But I also have to tell you, although we don't know anything about him yet, he's a stranger to us, right? We know, we're not naive, we have two little ruffians living in our house right now. We know that it's not going to be easy. We know there are going to be times where he's going to be disobedient, selfish, disrespectful, and he'll probably do some things that will really surprise us and, and even hurt us as parents. But you know what? You know what? We're still going to love him. We're still going to love him because he is our son. So me as an earthly, imperfect father, not knowing anything about this child, if I can express that kind of love for a child, how much greater do you think God's love is for you? Let me tell you. It's infinitely greater. Infinitely greater. Jesus knows everything about you, and yet he still came and he died for you. That's not a general y'all. I can't even say it. But it's a specific you. The psalm is, is very clear. He knows every detail about you, the particulars. And he knew that before he died on the cross. And he did it anyway, because he loves you. Wow. That is incredible. If you're here this morning and you don't know this love, you've never experienced this forgiveness, you never have known what it's like to be received unconditionally as a beloved son or daughter, I want you to know that you're going to have a chance to do that today at the end of our time. I don't want you to miss what God might be saying to you today. This is mind-blowing truth, isn't it? Like circuit-breaking stuff, like sparks shooting out of your ears kind of stuff. No wonder David says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So the first glimpse, the first vista we get into God's incomprehensible greatness is that he knows you better than you could ever know yourself. The second is verses 7 through 12. Join with me as we read. Where can I go from your spirit? 
Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, think east. If I settle on the far side of the sea, think west. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. The second glimpse of God's incomprehensible greatness is that God is with you wherever you go. Remember what I said about time, that God is present with all of time at the same time? The same is true about space. God isn't present just with all of time in one spot. He's present with all of time in every spot, in the entire universe. That's how big our God is, and that's how present he is with you. It's an inescapable reality. It's not just that God is, is present eating popcorn like some kind of observer either. Verse 10 tells us that what's he doing? He's holding our hand. He's guiding his people at all times and in all places so that they won't get lost and so that we won't fall down. So no matter where you are, no matter what you're walking through, no matter how far you have wandered off, no matter how dark the darkness is around you, God is there. He knows you perfectly. He knows everything you've done. He knows everything that you're about to do. And Jesus' pierced hand is still outstretched to you. All you need to do is take hold. And he'll grab it, and he will never, ever let you go. No matter how tempted you are to flee and to let go yourself, when you do that, God has you, and it's about his grip, not yours. How amazing is this? It's just incredible. I have to be honest with you guys. I often find myself thinking, what would my life, what would our lives look like if we lived in light of this truth in every moment, in every decision? How different would I be? How much more courageous? How much more bold? How much more confident? How much more loving? How much more selfless would I be? Well, just a few months ago, this last fall, I had a chance to travel with three other pastors here from Wheaton Bible Church into the Middle East, and we were looking for ways we could encourage and support the persecuted church. And I'll tell you, I was confronted with my lack of faith in this area in a huge way. We met a young man, a missionary, an American. We were in Palestine in a basement of this house, and he was telling us story after story after story of his bold proclamation in an area that is very dangerous, where people are being killed for being Christians where plans are being made to kill more Christians. He's in that town. He's walking the streets, sticking out like a sore thumb, and preaching the gospel to people as they pass by. And people's lives are being changed. People are being healed. I mean, I tell you, I was listening to story after story, and I was just blown away. So we'll call him Sam. So afterwards, I asked Sam, I said, Sam, how do you do it? How do you do it? He looks at me, and he says, Ted, what do you mean? I've got the creator God of the universe. The one who just, with a breath, created the whole world. He is with me at all times. 
Every corner I stand on, every street I walk down, every room I walk into, God is with me. What do I have to fear? Talk about being put in your place, right? It was such a challenge, such an encouragement for me to be reminded that the promises of God are true. They are true. He is with you, just like he was with this young man. John 10, 27 through 30 says it this way. This is Jesus talking. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. Or how about this, Romans 8, 38 through 39. This is Paul. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, did he catch that? Not even death. Or Psalm 139 puts it, the depths, right? Something like the grave. Not even that can separate you from the hand of God. God's hand reaches over the horizon of life itself. And even there, it will be strong for you. We have an amazing story, an illustration of this in Jesus' life we find in Mark chapter 5. It's the story of Jairus' daughter. Jesus is confronted with this man named Jairus. He's a religious leader of the time. And he's desperate. He comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, my daughter is sick and she's dying. You have to come to my house right now because you can heal her. So quickly, Jesus follows Jairus to his home. And when they finally get there, you can imagine what the scene is like. Weeping, wailing, screaming, crying at the tragic loss of one so precious and so young. But you know what Jesus does? He takes the parents and a few of his disciples. He walks into the little girl's room. She's laying there on the bed, dead. He gets down next to her, and he grabs her hand, and he whispers in her ear, little one, precious one, get up. And she does. She gets up. She gets up. She's alive. You see, the hand of Jesus literally reached through death, and with one yank, he pulled her through. When we allow Jesus to take our hand, darkness becomes light, far becomes near, and even death, death, death becomes life. All we need to do is reach out and take hold, and his strength will become our strength. Wow. Wow. So, so far we've seen two glimpses of God's incomprehensible greatness. First, God knows you better than you know yourself. Second, God is with you wherever you go. And third, verses 13 through 18. Follow along with me. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. 
Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Glimpse number three. God has shaped your every detail and your every moment. God has shaped your every detail and your every moment. This part of the psalm is such an amazing description of God's hands-on artistry, weaving together every bone, every muscle, every vein, every piece, and every part of who you are. It says that in your mother's womb, before your mom even knew that she was pregnant with you, God was there and he knew you perfectly. Before anyone else knew you existed, God was there, he knew you perfectly, and he loves you perfectly. This means that the moment you're conceived, you are you. You're not just a mass of cells. This means, as it says, all the days of life were ordained, that even during our last moments of life, when we feel like we have no more use, when we feel like just a shell of who we used to be, that our life is still precious, you are still you. God made you. He loves you. Let me show you this picture. If I were to tell you that this painting was a Canaris, that's my last name, uh, how much do you think it'd be worth? Why are you laughing? <laughs> uh, two bucks? Come on, somebody in the last service had way more than that. It wouldn't be worth anything, right? It would be worthless. It might be a nice picture. It might be well composed, but because it's a Canaris, and who am I? What is that worth? Nothing. Now, some of you know that's not a Canaris, right? That's a Picasso. And because it's a Picasso, how much do you think it's worth? A lot of money, right? One Picasso was just auctioned off a couple weeks ago, the most expensive painting ever sold. I mean, this thing is worth a ton of money. So what makes this so valuable? What makes art so, this piece of art so valuable? The artist, right? The artist. So if God is the artist that created you, how valuable do you think that makes you? Infinitely valuable. Infinitely valuable. More valuable than you could ever know. Now please don't make what I'm about to say about politics because it is about so much more than that. This is about who God is and who we are. It's because of passages like this one in Scripture that we believe firmly that life, all life is precious from conception to last breath. This is why we believe that both abortion and euthanasia are wrong. We're going to talk more about abortion later in the year in our fall series, but I want to say a little thing, something this morning because it's such a massive issue. In 1973, when Roe v. Wade was uh, decided, we didn't have 3D ultrasounds. My wife and I got one for uh, our new baby that's coming in a few weeks, like I mentioned earlier. And literally, you put like this, basically, my understanding is it's a magic wand. Is that right, doctors? Is that what it is? You put it on their stomach, and you roll it around. You can see every detail of this baby. You can see him smile. 
You could see him put his thumb in his mouth. You can see him kind of moving around in a way because he knows like something's going on as you're like pushing on him and stuff. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And with all this new medical technology, it's shown us that like when a doctor needs to take blood or a sample uh, from a baby that's eight weeks old, it will pull away. At eight weeks, it will pull away because all its organs are functioning, all its major organs. Its nervous system is working. Its brain is working. Its heart is pumping. Its liver is making blood cells. It has fingerprints. And there's even new research that shows that babies are dreaming when they're sleeping. But our culture says that that's not a human. That's not a person. That's not a soul. It's estimated that last year, there were at minimum 40 million abortions worldwide. 40 million abortions last year, at least, worldwide. That's about 125,000 a day. Now, statistics like that are kind of numbing. It's hard to really understand how many that is. But let me tell you this way. During World War II, 25 million soldiers were killed. During throughout the whole World War II, 25 million soldiers were killed. There are 40 million babies killed every year. Wow. In the U.S. alone, there's 3,000 abortions a day. You know what that means? That means about 22% of every pregnancy in the United States ends in abortion. This is a major issue, and it is a horrible tragedy. These deaths might be invisible to us, but they are not invisible to God. He knows each one, and he knows them perfectly. As I said, we're going to talk more about this in the fall, but I want you to hear me say two things. One, we are serious about the preciousness of life. Very serious about it. No matter how new, no matter how fragile. We're serious about the preciousness of life. And two, we are serious about grace. We are serious about grace. And if you're here this morning and you have had an abortion or you've been a part of an abortion, I want you to know, we want you to know that there is grace for you, there is love for you, there is redemption for you in this. We have all kinds of resources available for you to help you walk through this. You don't have to do it alone. In every women's bathroom, you can take a card and we can help talk to you about it. We have people who love to meet with you. We've got groups that are meeting and talking about this, helping one another. We want to help you. We have grace for you because God has had grace for all of us. So remember, God knows you better than you know yourself. He's with you wherever you go and he's shaped your every detail and your every moment. So why would God do this? Why would God do this? Why would he take such care to form every detail and every moment? Why would he be so present with us? Why would he care to know every detail about our life? You want to know why? Because God's love for you, for me, for us, is so much greater than we could ever imagine. It's so much more immense. It's so much more wonderful than we could ever understand. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19 says it this way. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power. Do you catch that? He's praying that we could have the power to understand this. 
that together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, how high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. This is good news, right? God is for you. He knows you. He's with you. He's formed every detail, everything that makes you up. And he loves you. And so with that, we're going to turn and we're going to look at this passage as it takes a turn. And we see David's response. Now, I want to warn you. It gets a little bit weird. All right? But I'm going to explain it and I hope it'll make sense. So look with me starting in verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So anybody else a little bit confused? Just me? Then I'll explain it to myself again. Um, So let's, let me try to explain. David in these last 18 verses has just done an amazing job, remember, of giving us a glimpse of God's incomprehensible greatness. A peek behind the curtain, a peek over the clouds, however you want to describe it. And he's shown us God's incredible, great love, care, and presence for his people. But when David takes his eyes off of God and he looks back at this world, he sees something very, very different. What does he see? He sees people who are killing one another. And he sees others who are trying to misrepresent or malign God. And David is mad about it. Of course he's mad about it. One commentator puts it this way. I think it's so helpful. These verses express David's disorienting, rough reentry into earth's atmosphere. Isn't that great? And it really, it leaves me, and I'm sure it leaves you feeling a little bit of whiplash. So there are two things that David are responding to here. And let me illustrate them for you because I think they'll make a lot more sense when we understand them. Remember that picture I showed you, the Picasso versus the Canaris, right? The Picasso's so much more valuable than a Canaris, right? Right? Yeah. So which one would you be more upset about if I were to tear it into pieces right here? If I were to take the Canaris and tear it up, the only person upset would be my wife, right? If I were to tear up the Picasso, there would be outrage. I'd be in the news. How could somebody possibly destroy something so valuable, so precious, so important, right? You are infinitely more valuable than a Picasso. Shouldn't we be infinitely more outraged when somebody wrongfully takes a life? David has seen God for who he is and has seen just how valuable his children are to him, and he is rightfully upset, as is God. Second, David is angry at those who hate God and tell awful lies about him. So for this one, I'm going to need you to actually think here, okay? Uh, Who is it in your life that you love more than anybody else? Who is it? I want you to actually picture a face, okay? Who is it that you love more than anybody else? Is it a parent? A grandparent, 
child, a spouse, a friend? Who is it? Let me help you out. It's usually the person who's loved you the most, the person who knows you the best, the person who has just been through thick and thin with you, the person who knows how you're wired and loves you for who you are. Okay, you got that person? For example, let's just say it's Nana, all right? The person you love more than anybody else is Nana. So tell me, how would you feel if somebody was walking around saying, I hate Nana, and I'm going to tell all kinds of lies to destroy her reputation because I hate her? Do you want to be friends with that person, Mac? Do you want to be friends with somebody who hates your Nana? No, of course not, right? Nobody would. You'd be so upset. How could anybody hate Nana? But I don't know how close you were listening. Did you catch those three things about the person who loves you best? Let me restate them. It's the person who knows you the best. Maybe the person who knows you better than you know yourself. The person who's been with you through thick and thin. The person who's with you wherever you go. And thirdly, the person who just knows how you're wired and loves you for who you are. Our God who created every detail of your wiring and loves you for who you are. You see, for David, God perfectly and infinitely does all of those things in, verse 130, in Psalm 139. And those are the same things he does for each of us. So he's upset when people hate God. He's upset when people malign God, when they make up rumors about God or make people, other people, hate God. But there's another question in this text that we have to ask to really understand how we can apply it to our lives today, and that is this. Why is it that David can say in verse 21 all the things that God says we're not allowed to say about our enemies in the New Testament? The New Testament says we're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. We're to serve them, right? But here, David says something different. So the question is, what happened between David and you and me that makes it not okay for us to say what David says in verse 21? I love the way Tim Keller answers this question. He says this, you want to know what happened? You want to know what changed everything? It's David's greater son, Jesus. He died on the cross praying for his enemies. That's what happened. Jesus died on the cross praying for his enemies. And because of that, because David's greater son's sacrifice, because of the great, overwhelming, persistent love that Jesus poured out to his enemies, we are to love those people as well. What's so interesting as he continues is that Jesus died praying Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is almost a mere opposite of Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is all about God's presence, his closeness. Psalm 22 is about distance. Jesus is on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why so far from my cries of anguish? So let me get this straight. Let's get our heads around this. So Jesus, the Son of God, the only perfect one, is dying on the cross praying that. Why are you so far, God? But then here's me, you, David... And we can't get away from the presence of God. Why? Why? Why did Jesus get the absence of God? Why did he get the cosmic stiff arm? Why did Jesus get torn away from God? Why did he lose the Father's hand? I'll tell you why. 
Jesus let go of the Father's hand on the cross because he was getting the rejection that we all deserve so that we could have the complete acceptance in God's eternal grip. And that is the grace that is offered to you this morning. Jesus suffered death and rejection so that you could be led in the way that is everlasting by a God who knows you better than you could ever know yourself, by a God who is with you wherever you go, guiding and holding you, by a God who has shaped your every detail and moment. So how do we respond? How do we respond to something so wonderful? We respond like David. We need to ask him to search us, to lead us into the way everlasting, forever secure in the hand of God. For some of you, this is just a reminder of something that is so easy to lose sight of in our day-to-day life. For others of you, this is your chance, your chance to reach out and grab Jesus' outstretched hand to you, which has the power to guide you through everything and anything in life and in death. And we're going to pray to do just that at the end. The second thing that we should do is what David did. We should worship. We should be in awe. Remember that moment standing over the mountain looking at this incredible expanse? I hope that's what this morning has been for you. I hope that you've looked out at the greatness of God and been blown away. I hope that your guts are being stirred. I hope that you're excited about what we're just about to do, and that is sing. We're going to worship. The band is going to come out right now, if you guys would come out, and we're going to sing and worship to God.